Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, hello. Hello there. This is... This is Owen Jones, in case you've accidentally stumbled on this, uh, in which case I am deeply sorry for the resulting trauma. Whether you're watching this on whatever thing you're watching it on, or you're listening to it on the podcast, please do look up the podcast and give us five star while you're there. Just helps get the message out. Just spread the word. Very appreciative. What are we talking about today? We're talking about sex. That's right, sex. Now, it is Valentine's Day, so I think the subject is apt. And also, of course, sex has actually technically been banned for most of the pandemic for single people. We don't talk about that very much, but it's it's a fact. It has been technically. I'm sure many of you are painfully aware of that fact. So there's a big excuse, I would say, to talk about the politics of sex. That's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about if you just tuned in expecting unadulterated filth you're probably going to be disappointed uh this is not just nothing wrong with that by the way it's just just not the topic of this particular episode i'm not ruling out in future and this one we're talking about all sorts of things we are talking about the pandemic and sex because i think that's an important thing to talk about we're talking about uh we're talking about uh feminism and sexual desire we're talking about incels we're talking about sex positivity we're talking about how prejudice collides with sexual attraction uh we're talking about uh, trans rights and how this intersects with this, not least the pathological obsession of anti-trans rights activists with certain elements which we will talk about. Uh, there's a lot to talk about, and it's going to be it's going to be very thorough. And I've got three fantastic guests. Let us bring them all in, one after the other, all together. Let's bring them all together. They're in now, anyway. <laughs> Amelia Srinivasan is a fantastic philosopher who has an upcoming book called the right to sex. Also do look up a seminal piece she wrote for the London Review of Books on that specific issue. We also have the wonderful Sean Fay, who is a writer extraordinaire and who has a very, very exciting book coming out uh, called The Transgender Issue, which will be coming out later this year, which again, you've got to buy both of those books, The Right to Sex and also uh, The Transgender Issue. And of course, the Last but not least, Hugh Lemmy, who has written loads of books, including Chubbs, The Demonization of My Working Ass. That is a we won't talk about that one. It's a work. No, we should. We should. It is a work of fiction. I'm portrayed as a top for stuff. And then we've got, uh, we've got and then he's also he's also the, the presenter of Bad Gays, and, uh, and, uh, which is a brilliant podcast you must listen to, and is writing a book which is called Bad Gays. So that's quite straightforward. Hello to all of you. Hi. Hiya. Do you know what, Sean? We're going to start with you because you were in a bit of a social media storm, something I've I've never been involved in myself, so I wouldn't know what that's like. But this was about this, this is about this particular issue. So just tell me, tell me about that little Twitter storm, which was, by the way, ridiculous. 
And what does it tell us? Um, so just a background for people that don't spend their lives on Twitter wisely. Um, actually, the content, this was two weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks ago today, I think. And um, there was a lot going on that weekend. It was a particularly like I was pretty pissed off with the pandemic. It was a sort of a trough for me in my emotional mood. Um, the trans uh, music producer, um, Sophie, had died the day previously. And obviously people were mourning her. Uh, and it was very odd for someone that was so seminal to trans and queer nightlife to be mourned kind of while we're all locked down, where you couldn't go to a nightclub where her music would be played. She was exactly the sort of person that would be kind of mourned in that way. So obviously I was uh, perhaps feeling a little bit um, down about that. Um, and I've been taught, having a lot of conversations increasingly about this kind of culture online of people scolding um, people for even missing <laughs> things from pre-lockdown life, not even saying that they would break the rules, just missing them. So I've been having conversations that day, actually, with a few people, mostly queer LGBTQ friends, um, some straight people too, uh, about like missing nightlife and stuff like that, and about basically how, yeah, there's there's been a kind of, uh, I don't know, like a sort of reinforcement of the idea that certain types of lifestyle, particularly now, are kind of morally better because they align more with what we should be doing because of pandemic restrictions rather than being inherently morally better. So <laughs> I was deliberately being provocative a little bit but like in an offhanded way where I just said some of us, I didn't say me specifically only, I said some of us enjoyed going out and having sex with inappropriate people um, and that's fine. And unfortunately the pandemic has kind of reinforced some of the most boring lifestyles which are already far too validated. I meant staying in Netflix, having a boyfriend or girlfriend, I'm bitter, I'm single. And it was a flippant comment. Anyway, I logged off and then I woke up the next morning and I had about <laughs> a thousand quote tweets about 200 of them calling me a whore. <laughs> some transphobes noticed that it, I'm trans, so some of them were calling me a man. And then there were also some left-wing people who also decided that I was personally telling them that their lifestyles were boring and that this might even be ableist because um, some disabled people, some neurodivergent people find going out overwhelming um, or find, you know, it's not something they enjoy, which of course is overreading hugely into my tweet. So obviously, I was quite shocked at the reaction about the kind of, I was the main character on Twitter for a day, um, but it kind of re sort um, underscored the point that, I w that led me to tweet that, which is the fact that there's this immense scold culture online at the moment about the very fact that I was expressing, um, I don't know, um, a regret over the loss of frivolity, over promiscuity, over these, um, of hedonism that like that's somehow morally wrong and even expressing it's really wrong and it was interesting that the levels of which like the fact that i'm a woman the fact that i'm trans kind of came into play and it became very misogynistic very quickly um and lots of judgments about my lifestyle about my sex life um but what i would say is i wasn't calling anyone's lifestyle boring i was talking about how i'm bored in lockdown and that's a subjective judgment which i think it's perfectly fine to make and also about the fact that the reality is, is it's Valentine's Day today is that there are some lifestyles that are being validated more than others. We've pretty much assumed now that this, the whole government policy has been geared towards monogamous um, cohabiting couples and families and single people, anyone outside of that structure um, is just assumed to have to like put all of their kind of desires with that's erotic, emotional, um, convivial, I don't know, <laughs> like loads loads of desires pretty much on hold and we're also supposed to pretend that that's fine because somehow if you express that you miss it you're actually kind of cheering on the deaths of people in the pandemic which is a bit of a leap anyway that was the context 
And it's interesting, isn't it? Bring in Hugh. Um, that other countries have actually managed to navigate this particular issue much better than Britain, whose government have completely just ignored single cohabiting, not cohabiting, single people who aren't cohabiting with someone. Um, I mean, where, for example, they've done the option you can partner up with one other person. I think the Netherlands did that. The New York public authorities officially recommended glory holes. Now, when I put, ever put that, on, I put that on Twitter. Some people didn't know what that meant. My poor, poor, sweet summer children. <laughs> what do you think, you about glory holes? Sure, no, but about that or about ways of the government navigating this during the pandemic, given sex is a pretty basic need. Um, yeah, I mean. Um... Here, I live in Spain, and here they've um, each each region has different rules. But um, but here you can meet with people from another household under certain circumstances. So theoretically, I suppose that could be one way one way of doing it. Um, but um, I think the problem is that going in, going into this, um, sex is probably a very like a very low priority on, in in thinking about how people are going to organise um, restrictions, and yet especially after what well, has been 10 months, 11 months, you're, you start to realise that actually sex is such an integral part materially of the way people live their lives. Um, and especially, and that so many people don't live sex lives that are based around people they live with or cohabit with or, or are married to. Um, and that's like, I think, maybe for a month or two, that fit, that sort of could be brushed brushed, brushed aside. But, you know, like there's a limit to the amount that people can put on hold their sex life um, and the, those connections that they have. And and secondly, whether people can or can't, I mean, it's possible to sort of uh, forego it for a long time. But the same for but for many people, that can have like a huge effect on uh, their mental health, like how they they interact with the world, um, all sorts all sorts of aspects. So it's, so so what seemed at first to be like a really really minor aspect of the planning for the pandemic, after a long amount of time you realise actually sex fits into lots of other different aspects and to do with like care and yeah, conviviality and social relations that you might not think of in offhand because, um, because it's not thing, something that people necessarily talk about openly. I mean, I know amongst your thoughts, it's, you, you, it's this sense of the pandemic really crystallising how you get this self-sufficient heterosexual family, which is central to... Class politics. Do you, do you want to explain what you mean? Well, I mean, so, you know, when you think about what lies um, behind the government's decision to make the, um, enforce the policies that Hugh and Sean have been talking about, I mean, one thing just has to do with their <clears throat> generally farcical ineptitude. But there's also, you know, a laying bare of a certain kind of logic of, the straight um, nuclear family um, that plays a central role within neoliberalism. So the family as the site of everything you need, right? The state isn't going to provide anything, so it's going to be the family that um, allows you to take out credit, that is going to provide um, reproductive care, end-of-life care, um, financing for anything you want to do, for education, um, and also sex, right? So I think there, you, you see that playing out here. So part of it is just government incapacity to think carefully about, you know, non-normative 
lives. And when we're talking about non-normative, we're talking about a huge mass of people, right? I mean, yeah, we're talking, and, and not just, um, I mean, so single people, often very young people who live with their, you know, their parents and don't get to see, don't get to go out and have sex with anyone. Um, older people who live by themselves or in care homes, uh, you know, queer people of all kinds. I mean, so there's just, a, you know, a, this might well be the majority of the population who is non-normative in this way. Um, and so I see their their punishment in this respect is not just collateral damage of the incompetence of the government, but, you know, a working out of the logic of the relationship of the kind of patriarchal hetero family in relation to a neoliberal project uh, that is, um, you know, uninterested in uh, the socialization of, of social need. And that's also desperately terrified of desire. So I think Sean is absolutely right that, you know, there's this, um, there's this fear of, of people's want, people's desire. Certain people are entitled to desire things. The people who play the game of having the wealthy, usually white, straight heteronormative family and then everyone else from you know kids who want something more than you know a single potato for a free school meal to young people who want to be able to have sex with people they don't live with or don't live with anyone all of those desires are seen as excessive um, and so cannot be kind of met by by the state Last year, for the London Review of Books, you wrote this article called The Right to Sex, and this will be turned into a, well, it's not going to be turned into, you're going to do a book as well called that, yeah. but expanding on those themes. It's a brilliant piece which people need to read. Do you want to just kind of give a precy of what you were arguing in that piece? And we'll use that as a jumping off point. Sure. I mean, so the, the piece starts with um, what is now the extremely well-known case of Elliot Roger, the, the first really famous um, self-described incel who goes on this mass rampage, kills lots of people in California, and um, out of an aggrieved sense of entitlement to um, sex with women, um, but a certain kind of woman. So he is very interested in enforcing a very rigid um, hierarchy, right? His uh, fixation is on you know, the figure of the hot blonde slut who he feels like is um, unfairly keeping sex from him. Um, so the thing I start this piece with is by noticing the way in which feminist commentary, of course, correctly talks about Elliot Roger as this figure of male sexual entitlement. Um, and in, in some more sophisticated cases, also as a kind of symptom of a kind of capitalist commodification of sex. But no one was that interested in, the, in Roger's own self-diagnosis, according to which certain kinds of like sexual racism, because he was... Um, biracial part uh, Malaysian Chinese, um, sorry, Chinese Malaysian, and also um, kind of prejudice against uh, shy, introverted, bad at sports, basically people, men who aren't fitting um, the norms of heteromasculinity. So that's his diagnosis. Now the diagnosis is wrong because he, he was a homicidal, you know, creep. Um, so at the very least his sexual and romantic exclusion was overdetermined. But in principle, those kind of explanations don't have to be wrong. And in fact, we all know that there's a huge amount of sexual racism, for example, um, sexual ableism. Uh, and so the piece was trying to get us to confront those questions about the way in which patterns of discrimination, structures of discrimination inflect and shape 
sexual and romantic desire and also sexual romantic hierarchies uh, without giving in to a discourse of sexual entitlement or a kind of authoritarian moralism of the kind that you saw in like second wave feminism where you know desire was heavily policed or there was an attempt to heavily police desire and get people's desires to conform with their politics and so we're trying to kind of bring that issue back it's an issue that people um lots of gay subcultures talk about i'm sure hugh uh, can say something about that um but it was trying to to try and kind of find an ambivalent space between entitlement and moralism on one hand and just a kind of simple consent centric sex positivity which just you know says any kind of sexual contract is fine as long as everyone kind of consents to it because that's just a very liberal way of thinking about sex i mean before bring q in on that because i think i think he's he definitely will have very interesting thoughts in it sean i mean one of the things anti-trans i mean anti-trans activists are amongst the most psychologically manipulative factions I've ever come across. Uh, I've had the uh, luxury of, of being on the receiving end of lots of different factions, but there is something specifically, particularly manipulative about them. And one of the things they constantly go on in your mentions is very lurid uh, details uh, or questions, lurid details about whether or not X or Y individual will have a sexual relationship with a trans person. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you want to talk about that in terms of, you know, because that has become... Literally, they will just invade your mentions and and, and start hashtags. Uh, I mean, I remember for a while they did, came up with the Owen Jones Cunnilingus Challenge hashtag, which was interesting. Did you just talk about that in, in relation to into Amir's work? Yeah, so I think I think there's there's two sides to this, right? Is that yes, there's the anti-trans side, which I'll come on to, but also I think about. Um, five years ago, I would say, when there was the kind of explosion of trans visibility in the media and very like neoliberal and more American media, BuzzFeed, Vice, mm. Them.us, this kind of expansion through venture capitalism of LGBT media, is it focused on like trans visibility and starting to talk about trans issues, but in a very kind of yeah neoliberal way, all designed around clickbait. And so you did actually get this kind of um, spring of like think pieces written sometimes by trans people or by other LGBTQ people, basically posing yeah, the question about is it transphobic to not date a trans person or leaving trans people out of your sexual pool or whatever. There was an explosion of those kind of think pieces. And I think they interacted with anti-trans online, they interacted with anti-trans, um, if you like, obsessives too. So those kind of pieces seem to fuel anti the anti-trans line which is that um yeah that trans people as a group not just individual trans people collectively the trans movement is trying to impose itself sexually on cisgender people particularly lesbians and gay men um what i what i would say about that i think the first thing to say about this is one thing that really irritates me is that this whole kind of discussion is predicated on the idea that there is a link between extending political solidarity to a group and having sex with them. <laughs> and, and the reality is that's not the case. So, you know, in the case of trans women who have sex with cis men, uh, we, and I, because I unfortunately am part of that group, um, we are just like all women in probably the greatest danger from cis straight identified cis men who have sex with us or have intimate relationships with us. The idea that men who desire us are extending us an act of political solidarity is a complete misnomer. So the so so when anti-trans, what you're referring to is when anti-trans um, feminists in particular will say, if a straight man says trans women are women, they'll be like, go down on a pre-op trans woman then. Or if a gay man says, you know, trans men are men, it's like perform cunnilingus on a trans man. 
Um, and obviously that's about um, an internal thing in anti-trans movements where they see sort of trans bodies as freakish and horror show and there's a kind of <laughs> complete delusion that no one wants to have sex with trans people and no one finds trans people sexually desirable, which isn't the case. Um, it's kind of collective myth. But it's interesting that, yeah, what they do is conflate the idea that someone coming out in terms of political solidarity, that the next step would be to extend sexual desire to them. And it's almost like, well, you're not going to do that. I'm going to call your bluff. But obviously it's odd that these people would identify as feminists because it would be inherently anti-feminist to make the argument that it's the same as misogynist men who go, but I love women. I love women. What do you mean? I'm not a misogynist. I love women because they bang loads of women. And any feminist could see that instantly. But the fact that transphobia can cloud your judgment to the extent that you kind of reinforce this very patriarchal, very sexist um, idea that um, desire for someone and, and, and your desire to basically to fuck them is the same as their inherent worth politically as, as a being. Um, so, so that's what I would say on that. The other thing is that obviously, um, yeah, I think trans people are one of many groups and I know that Amia mentions them in her LRB piece and it's not just trans people. Um, it could be so, certain um, people whose racialized experiences is that trans people have this kind of, uh, it's different for trans men and trans women, but kind of, um, yeah, this idea of the grotesque and the idea that um, despite the fact that sex work is the most common profession for trans women in particular worldwide, so clearly there is a market to have sex with trans women, there's kind of this like simultaneous underground desire in erotica in sex work um, on dating apps. But then there's this kind of public-facing idea of trans people as grotesque, as abject. And I think it's less interesting to say if you don't desire people, you're a transphobe. It's what about people who do desire trans people, but are also transphobes and also hate themselves, are disgusted with their own desire. They feel the desire, but because of the political um, environment in which their desire exists, they're inclined to both dis dislike themselves and also the trans person who's the object of their desire. Hugh, one of the things me is talking was talking about was i mean it's that sexual racism for example which is endemic let's be honest on the gay bi male scene not just in britain but elsewhere uh, on dating apps and in queer spaces which range from people clearly stating on their profiles various ethnicities they are overtly just excluding or on the other side fetishization um, so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that, but also because I want to bridge onto dating apps for things quite interesting things to talk about. Because what one of the things the pandemic has done is accelerate existing trends and existing crises, and there's a crisis of queer spaces. And one of the reasons for crisis in queer spaces is because increasingly gay and bisexual men use dating apps to hook up and don't mm -hmm. feel the need to go to queer spaces, and therefore those queer spaces end up being driven into financial crisis and closure. So I'd just be interested in those two elements. Yeah. I mean, I think the, third, the first thing to say is that um, uh, we've really set back, back from the idea that queer spaces are like necessarily like utopian or, um, you know, that because some people, um, me included, might have had like really uh, liberatory experiences of being able to go into spaces without, where like heterosexual people aren't a norm. Um, that they therefore that therefore translates into like being utopian. Like most queer spaces are commercial, and and I'd class dating apps as well in the same thing. Like the dating apps are a commercial enterprise, started to make money, um, and and so I think we should just start to maybe think about them in terms of like a sexual infrastructure. I think it's I think it's perhaps too easy to say that the uh, the collapse of 
queer spaces in, in a lot of urban spaces, you know, like the gay bars and clubs and um, cruise bars and, and places like that. I don't think you can just straight say that that's down to Grinder. I think that's down to like a whole bunch of different mm-hmm. things happening in society in terms of like the way that people socialize. Um, and, and of course, like gentrification is like a huge impact on that as well. Um, there's a great book actually by Samuel Delaney called Times Square Red, Times Square Blue which examines exactly this in the in the 90s about how his sex life was impacted by um, the cleanup of Times Square by Rudy Giuliani as part of the process of the gentrification of New York. Um, and likewise, Gentrification of the Mind by Sarah Shulman, which looks at um, the effects of the AIDS crisis on gentrification in in, um, in the village in New York and, and how that affected queer spaces as well. Um, and then in terms of like sexual racism, I think... Um, I think the sexual racism is obviously like a reflection. I, I mean, I'm probably, I'm certainly not the right person to, to answer these questions like definitively, but the it's a reflection of wider racism in society and also in the way that uh, perhaps that we conceptualize sexual desire as entirely uh, innate. It's something that just, we just have, we're born with it. Um, and it doesn't need to be questioned or interrogated. We can't have a critical relationship to why we do and do, don't find certain things attractive, that it's just this uncontrollable force that flows out of us. I think some of that comes from the way that since the gay rights movement um, uh, started to put emphasis upon coming out of the closet in the, sort of late, in the 1960s and, and that sort of pride, uh, which is obviously makes sense entirely... Um, has been a very successful strategy for for furthering the cause of, of gay rights and queer rights. Behind that, there's sometimes this um, this logic, which is a very good counter argument to the idea that homosexuality was chosen or is a lifestyle, which say it is something that is innate. So you're born born of it. In the words of Gaga, born this way, um, and perhaps. Uh, perhaps other other aspects sort of, such as sexual racism, people saying like, I'm not racist, it's just taste, uh, needs to be like understood within that context and interrogated in that same way. Um, what do we, what are we actually fighting for in terms of like liberatory ideas? Maybe it's worth saying that like, it doesn't matter why you, or what, like how you, how you go about, uh, how you conceive of where your desire comes from. And, and what does it mean to say, um, I, I did choose to be gay and I'm happy with that. Our rights uh, as gay people shouldn't be determined upon the idea that it's out of our control. My 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 right to, to, to sleep with a man is not determined on the fact that I, I can't control my desire for that man. I, I just, whether on, it doesn't matter to me whether I chose to be gay, whether I guided my sexuality, whether I, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in terms of sexual racism, therefore, that, like that's something that also has to be interrogated. Like, if you say this is just my taste, where does that come from? Um, that doesn't exist in a vacuum. And and I think in terms of apps as well, um, it's also worth interrogating. Like, uh, the, the, for example, Grinder had as part of part of the infrastructure of the app race that was built into the infrastructure of the app from the from an early day early days which received a lot of criticism because people then were saying, you know, like that you're furthering the idea that race is a, is a, uh, is a good thing to like to determine what sort of type you have. Um, and they changed that policy last year. And I think one of the interesting things about that, which is a side effect of what they clearly thought was a move towards becoming more inclusive and removing the idea of sexual racism as something that's acceptable 
is actually made much harder for for many people of color to find each other because actually sexual infrastructure like apps they are based around sex but they're also based around other types of community and organizing and meeting and um you know you can make friends which are through sex apps which aren't like friends who you'd sleep with or want to sleep with we might have shared interests um like people people do use grinder for other reasons than sex and other apps are available so i think like one one thing that was the un, unintended side effect of that was um was actually made it much harder for people of color in communities where they are massively minorities and if you're in a small town and and, and you know it's 90 percent white 95 percent white finding another queer person of color can be really hard and so actually uh actually that made it very really difficult and actually like encumbered people's chance to like make friends and find find hookup partners etc cetera, etc cetera. so for that reason i think like we need to start rethinking the apps as not just especially as queer space Oh, this is our dying away for them, of course. It's to ask, like, how do we organize apps? Can we think about apps more democratically? You know, th these are these are these are forms of communication, and who owns them, and who's extracting the data from them, and how how are they being structured, and how are they structuring our desire? I mean, I'd be really interested in your further thoughts on dating apps, not least within, I guess, the context of the pandemic, when clearly people are even more atomized. Uh, the normal, uh, especially single people who live alone, or lots of people, given the housing crisis in places such as London, are often living with with strangers who they may not necessarily have good interpersonal platonic relationships with. So, in terms of that that role of providing some sort of sense of I don't know community and and the able to, that's so that's how people socialise now, I suppose, in lots of ways. But also how they relate, do you think, to people's sexual horizons mm. yeah i mean i think uh, what he said about how we need to think about the sexual infrastructure the the economics of the sexual infrastructure right whether that's queer physical spaces or social media is is absolutely right um so i mean what one thing that I, I always think is well wouldn't it be nice if you had dating apps that were genuinely democratized, cooperatively run, basically on the same model as early gay spaces and queer spaces more generally. Um, because you do have an algorithm that is not simply reflecting your desires, but actively shaping them. I mean, it's the same thing is true of the algorithms that you know run something like Pornhub, right? So what you, you might think of yourself as freely exploring your desires on there, but actually, you know, if you look for if you use certain keywords, you're going to get a very specific version of that of um, of what you of what you've asked for. Um, so, I mean, so so I, I do think we have to think of, think actively about the way in which algorithms, generally and specifically the algorithms of dating apps, are, are shaping people's desires and what does it do to people to encourage them to actively think about their desires, um, romantic, friendship, sexual in terms of kind of deal breakers. Um, uh, but I think Hugh is absolutely right about the history of how we ended up in this place where we are on the whole kind of resistant to engaging in desire critique. Um, and it's for a really good reason we ended up in this place of anxiety about subjecting desire to critique, right? I mean, the, the malleability of desire has been a cover and excuse for um, various forms of 
enforced conversion, conversion, you know, gay conversion, trans conversion. Um, and in that context, um, a discourse of, of innateness and unmalleability is a, is politically really important. Um, but it stops people from telling the truth about their own sexuality often. So we all remember, well, we probably remember Cynthia Nixon some years ago saying that, you know, something like, um, I've tried straight and I've tried gay and I can tell you gay is better and that's why I've chosen it, right? And she was saying something very true about her experience of sexuality, right? And um, and her her experience, not just of sexuality, but of life partnership and and her politics and her solidarities and her affinities and who she wanted to make family and communion with. Um, and there was a huge backlash uh, because it was felt that that was a truth that wasn't ready to be spoken yet um, because it's a truth that can be kind of co-opted by the right. So I think it's there's this difficult question about how we have conversations about sexual racism, sexual racism, for example, or the complexities of desire. I mean, I'll say one thing. So people think of gay men as being very sexually racist, but they aren't more sexually racist than straight people. It's just that gay men, to their to their enormous credit, talk about it a lot more than straight people do, um, because you know, for gay men, sex is still a political thing, right? The politics of gay sexuality, even as, um, you know, forms of sexual, homosexual repression, political repression have somewhat alleviated, you know, it, it, it's still apparent. Um, and so I think there's a kind of more natural space for engaging in a political critique of desire among gay men. Um, but it's, you know, as much, if not more so, a kind of straight problem. Um, and it's something, as Hugh said, that we kind of inherit from from our politics more generally. Sean, you were heavily nodding there, so I'm going to have to bring you in. Yeah, no, I, well, I mean, I agree. And I think, you know, it's an interesting one, too, because it leads into the, again, I'm thinking from a trans angle, is that I think um, what Hugh was saying earlier about this idea of almost your desire, which is, has been a very necessary bedrock of many gay and lesbian people's sexuality, which is that your sexual orientation is inviolate, is where this conflict comes around trans people, right? So there are a lot of trans people walking around who like, have been culturally erased as sexual beings, but are, do exist as sexual beings, who do not have mixed sex characteristics, if we say that. So the reality is, is that um, clearly this makes some gay and lesbian people uncomfortable because there is a kind of almost querying of where the source of your desire is and so for example i can understand why it's very fraught when cisgender lesbians um especially online in very unnuanced spaces like twitter are basically being told that they're bigots if they wouldn't have sex with what they imagine to be a trans woman with a penis because lesbians grow up in a culture of like compulsory heterosexuality the idea that they're pressured all the time in, uh, and men you know typically lesbophobia manifests itself as men kind of sexually coercing lesbians or behaving in a coercive way in public space so that can feel very reminiscent i think it's worth saying that i, I think that's a very valid thing to feel the the on the other side which doesn't get discussed as much is how the rhetoric around that though can mingle with transphobia to kind of almost completely erase trans lesbian sexuality um, to make it seem like inherently in some cases trans lesbians are predatory or, or that trans lesbians are deluded or imposters on lesbian sexuality as if there's been a coherent understanding of what lesbian desire is ever since 
we first named it because there hasn't been there have been trans lesbians at least out in in the uk since the 70s um there have been always been perhaps people whose desires were more fluid who might have identified with the label lesbian but might have behaved in a kind of more bisexual manner even before um be yeah before the kind of politics of the 70s where the, the term lesbian really crystallized so i think it's i think it's worth yeah saying that there is that conflict between people who who the the fear of conversion therapy or being told that your desire can be forcibly changed and you should be able to change it which obviously many people find very threatening is sometimes i find it very frustrating that that can be fused with the issue of trans people as sexual beings particularly in queer communities the idea that everyone has been compelled um to kind of review their sexuality in light of the fact that there might be trans people with the genitals that you don't expect or the secondary sex characteristics you don't i don't actually think that's often what's being said i mean you could probably find extreme examples of it online but i often think that there's a kind of huge misunderstanding there's also a different in my book i write about um there's an incident of a trans man in london who um well he, he had a vagina who was thrown out of a gay sauna in london and that's the distinction for me is he wasn't trying you know it wasn't like he was trying to coerce anyone to have sex he was just merely in a sex on premises venue and was ejected from it because of his um, because of his body, essentially, uh, and the fact that he identifies as male, trans, you know, had male documentation didn't matter. They um, they threw him out. That's the distinction for me is about who's allowed to have space, who's allowed to be um, in queer space. And that's a very different question to the individual question about whether or not people have to change their own desires or have sex with someone they don't want to have sex with, which they don't. Hugh, with these sorts of discussions, there are many who go, well, this is all terribly bourgeois, isn't it? Going to win back the Red Wall with these sorts of conversations, <laughs> which is now the test applied to, to pretty much anything we ever talk about. Um, so, but to, to maybe to head that off, I'd be interested in your thoughts about the relationship between sexual politics and material politics, housing, employment, and so on. Yeah, right. I mean, this is like a... This is not, I mean, this is not just a, a thing in the red wall. I mean, there, there are gays in the red wall. I have to <laughs> announce this. I've met them and they, they might not necessarily even identify as gay. They, they might, you know, but um, yeah. Uh. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Queers are not a urban phenomenon and are not a London phenomenon in the UK, etc., etc. But yeah, um... I mean, I think part of part of it is to do with um, the way people first maybe like heterosexual people first encounter queer politics um, and their level of engagement with it, which can be can can seem 
like very much around like identity issues. Part of that is because of who gets to express those uh, politics, uh, people who already have some sort of degree of like media standing or cultural capital, as it were, white gay men, for example. Um, and partly it's because like it's what editors decide makes really exciting copy. The actual, when you actually get down to it, this sort of um, the down on the ground sort of activism that a lot of LGBT people, LGBTQ people are engaged in is like super material, you know, like you, you'll, you'll hear this like every week in the, in the Observer or whatever, there's, there's an article about uh, trans, trans women or something. But then when was the last time you saw them talking about um, homelessness and, and sexuality, which is like a huge issue in the, in the gay community, in the queer community, like a, the homelessness rates are much, much higher for queer people than for heterosexual people. Um, but that's not, that's not a good culture war issue. But that's where people are actually doing a lot of work and activism. And, you know, like just two years ago, a new space opened up in London specifically for homeless LGBTQIA people. Um, and then secondly, that the, the lots of this stuff, I mean, it's really messy. Like a lot of this stuff is like material politics. So we're talking here about like uh, who, how, how you can have sex, how to have sex in a pandemic, let's say that. And, um, and people's sex lives and stuff. And it sounds like, oh, well, who, you know, there's more serious stuff who cares, but a lot of the stuff we're talking about here is actually housing issues. You know, like I'm very aware here, here living in Spain that um, hooking up is like a lot harder if you don't have your own place. And um, because so many more people live with their families so much later because of unemployment, like a huge rate for youth unemployment uh, and because of the expense of, of housing. So this is a housing issue we're talking about. And we're saying like this, this key aspect of someone's life, like whether you can get laid or not, really depends upon like this super material thing. And like, it sucks. Like, it, like to, not, to not be able to get laid for years because you have to live with your parents because you can't find a job. Like that's, that's just part of a huge shitty material issue um and uh and that doesn't have these other effects that you might not necessarily think about or like conceive of which is that suddenly owning a your own property and living alone becomes like part of a your sexual capital as well um so so even on these things that might seem like really frivolous um there's there's so many material bases to it and and beyond that like the, the whole history of LGBTQ uh, activism has been based around like super material things to do with housing and homelessness, being sacked, whether you can be sacked or not from your job, uh, discrimination, um, the fact that for years, uh, lesbian women who chose to come out would not have access to their own children because that was they were seen as a potential threat, things like this. So so the entire history of, um, of, of, a, of LGBTQ activism is a material struggle for be for better rights, which include housing and healthcare and uh, and employment. And um, I mean, if you can't see that, I pity you. Like, 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 like you're you're choosing not to see it if you don't see, if you don't look at the very this history, which is right on in front of you, and then you choose this thing like this is an identity politics that doesn't relate to people's material lives or the lives of working class people. Like, it's just not true. You're choosing not to see that. I mean, it's the thing, isn't it? I mean, I mean, sex is a class issue. Everything. I mean, everything's a class issue. But it, but it, you know, the the imprint of class inequality mm. and divisions and sex is. I mean, for for, I mean, for an example, actually, um, when we, uh, when was it? 
2017, we celebrated the great fanfare in the UK, the so-called decriminalization of homosexuality, um, which was a really important step forward in 1967 after the Wolfenden report that came 10 years beforehand. Um, but it has like a that that is that also had like a very uh, deep class inflection, which was that um, sex between two men was legalized, but only between two men who lived in uh, who were in the same building, the same house behind a locked door with nobody else there. So that that already limits who can have sex to a certain class dimension. You have to be a homeowner. You can't be living in rented accommodation. You can't have a landlord or landlady who you live with. You can't share a flat. So, so, so yes, yeah, it's, it's always been a part of that struggle, the class dimension. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested in in your thoughts on that, and and also on sex positivity. Now, this is something which uh, many of the same second wave feminists who are hostile to trans rights they often portray. Uh, sex positive feminists in a very derogatory fashion as fun feminists as uh, as liberal feminists who are catered to the sexual needs of men i mean that's mm. that's the discourse so i'd be interested in either the, either well both of those things yeah i mean so i think everything you said is just absolutely true i i uh, i mean i it's, i was listening to um an an old podcast that melinda cooper did with uh Dan Dedvere and on the dig um, about uh, family matters and he he uses the phrase identity politics and she just sort of stops him I mean he's he using kind of square scare quotes and he she says look um, talking about gender or queer politics isn't necessarily to be talking about identity politics identity politics is a way of doing politics mm -hmm. and you can do class politics in an identitarian fashion um and part of the reason she's saying that is because of like the important kind of history, historical relationship between the policing and, of non-normative sexualities, which includes queer sexualities, but also single motherhood, very importantly, in both the US and the UK. Um, and the relationship about anxiety, the policing of those kinds of non-normative family and relational forms, um, and the growth of the neoliberal state, right? The mass erosion of, of the welfare state, um, the mass privatization of social reproduction and social care. Those two things go kind of hand in hand. And I think it also means that, you know, if you're looking for non-familial forms of, uh, of resistance, possibilities for the socialization of forms of care, um, you look often to queer politics. That's not to kind of romanticize queer politics. Um, I think Hugh was really, really right to caution us against that in the beginning. But the kind of networks of care that especially young queer people who are disproportionately turfed out from their family homes um, establish and run, even in the context of a pandemic, I think is an extremely useful guide in our current conjuncture. Um, on sex positivity, so... Again, I think the history here is really important. So it's very, it's easy to, to see in sex positivity just this kind of perfect convergence with the liberal view that uh, we don't interrogate a contract, right? As long as two parties freely consented to a contract, then everything that follows is fine. Um, and we're not going to ask ourselves, why do certain people have to buy or have to sell or have the desires they do and so on? I think that's too easy because what you see in the actual kind of history of 
of feminist thought and practice in the run-up to the development of sex positivity, kind of in the late 70s and early 80s, is, is the way in which a kind of desire to like politicize sex and sexual desire ends up getting used in quite reactionary ways, often unintentionally. Right. But there's a convergence between anti-porn feminism, obviously anti-sex work feminism with the, the new right that happens um, in the 80s and happens to like deleterious like material effect. Right. So you get things like, um, you know, child care workers getting arrested for false accusations of pedophilia, um, uh, you know, lesbian and gay bookstores getting charged with criminal obscenity in Canada because of anti-pornography laws. Um, so what you have is a political reaction against the way in which feminism accidentally has colluded with certain kind of reactionary ways of thinking about sex and sexuality and desire. So that's really the heart of sex positivity, which isn't to say that it hasn't been and can't be kind of co-opted by liberal, you know, feminism. Um, I mean, anything can be co-opted by, by liberalism, um, but I think it's really important to remember that because it, it exists in a dialectical relationship to what came before. So the question, I think, is how can we, um, you know, achieve some kind of better synthesis um, where we really understand the deep political motivations for sex positivity while, you know, being more radical in our general kind of willingness to um, take on the kind of social and political complexity of desire and sex. Sean, I was interested in your thoughts on class as well. I mean, it's interesting, you know, often the, a critique, which didn't just belong to the right of the left, of, for example, homosexuality, was that it was a bourgeois deviation of some description. And that sometimes applied to LGBTQ people in general, including, you know, talking about trans rights, as I've said, it's this caricature of this is a metropolitan London bourgeois discussion which will alienate... Uh, the apparently exclusively cisgendered straight white men who live in uh, who live in so-called red wall seats, but you know, so a quarter of trans people um, go through homelessness, for example, at various stages, and also that how it converges with sex work, uh, this whole issue, um, and how that critique, as we've seen of certain second wave feminists who are anti-trans, how it links together with all those issues. Yeah, I mean, this is something I look at in the book is, uh, my book, I mean, is that, um, yeah, so like 24% of youth homelessness is LGBTQ plus people and trans people are overrepresented in that. So um, I interviewed the, ch the chief exec of AKT, formerly the Albert Kennedy Trust, a youth homelessness uh, charity for LGBTQ youth 16 to 25. And he told me that I think about 20 years ago, 5% of the homeless kids they worked with were trans. Now it's like in London, it's 35%, I think. Um, in the Northeast, it's even higher. So like classic here, the Northeast place that people pretend that there's no, um, no queer people at all. Um, so for trans youth, because of the rise in trans visibility, we see like we see all the good sides. And again, it's like Hugh said about who gets to talk in the media. It's the middle class trans people who are doing well, people like me. Um, and actually, the reality is, is that this swell in visibility and people coming out younger is good. But for some people on an individual level, it's not good. They come out younger and their family kick them out. And where that collides with sex, one of the things that all of the people across the homeless charities I spoke to, and I also, Hugh mentioned the Outside Project, which is the new space in London that opened um, a couple of years ago, um, 
for yeah lgbtqia um homeless youth no homeless people i think in general it's not just young people um is is that it's very common for people to do um a kind of a form of sex work which is just exchanging uh, sex for a place to stay it's not it's not money that changes hands it's that someone will give you shelter and you have sex with them that's very common for young trans people to um to be engaged in and i think um that's a workers rights issue that's a, that's an issue of um uh yeah of, of the fact that um that yeah that there are material resources the fact that housing benefit or what was housing benefit now is universal credit is not um if you're under 35 there's a default assumption that you can just live with other people but the reality is if you're a transitioning trans young person um you're very liable to be harassed in a space particularly again if you're in transition so trans men who are chest binding every day or um trans women who are being who would be having to house share with people who are potentially transphobic and have to share like washing facilities with them etc so there are really material aspects here about like a substantive class issue the other thing i would say is that even though like in the case of trans people we're sort of seen as different to gay people because gay people it's their sexuality and trans people it's about gender identity the way in which anti-trans narratives work is often to still conflate us it's a classic queer phobic thing is to conflate us with sexual deviance so the idea of trans women as predatory or creepy or or whatever that has a bearing in social attitudes and to that affects our earning capacity too so the british social attitude survey shows that most people i think at 80% said they weren't transphobic but only like i think like 4 in 10 people don't think trans people should be able to teach primary school kids now so like, where does that come from why do people not think that a trans person a substantive a substantial part of the british population thinks a trans person should not be able to teach primary school children and i think that is about sex in a way too that's about undercurrents of narratives about being deviant about being of predation of being not safe of not being part of the nuclear family of not being okay around kids uh, in a way that perhaps still persists in some areas around um gay and lesbian and bi people who are cisgender but maybe not to the same extent so i do think that directly affects trans people's earning capacities and and trust within society so i do think it comes back to class and you just finally given you know you're something of a historian of queer history so we need to just finally tap into that in terms of you know i mean it's often what's the cliche history doesn't often repeat itself but it often rhymes and so i've been interested in just in terms of your work looking back at anti-gay backlash anti-gay repression and so on and and echoes today Yeah, well, first to say I'm not a historian. Well, <laughs> um, you kind of are. I like to write about history, but like I don't have any any training in that side of, side of things. But yeah, no, I um I think it's first of all it's easy to get complacent about how recently a lot of the, the more positive changes in, in general social attitudes have occurred. Um and secondly that um and I I don't I don't want to be too pessimistic about this, but um things can go backwards as well as forwards the the history of um sort of persecution of uh, lgbtq people in the uk over the last 120 years has seen waves of persecution that is actually that there, there were times in the 30s where there was a relative openness around certain types of queer culture in london for example um which which were then suppressed in the late 1940s early 1950s quite extensively and again in the 1970s there was a sort of uh, resurgence in gay organizing and also in gay uh, social life and and an LGBTQ social life in fact um which was really quite heavily repressed again in the 1980s um partly 
under the rubric of the sort of start of the AIDS crisis, but really by a government taking advantage of a sort of moral panic around the AIDS crisis as well. Um, so, so the history, I guess, of um, of sort of LGBTQ awareness and organising has to always keep an eye on the past um, about the fact that you that the, the struggle is has has no end point really that it's um that, that it's a sort of one step forward uh, two steps forward one step back at times and to be aware of these rising threats um of sort of social conservatism and uh sort of insinuation and queer bashing and stuff you know and um uh, yeah and to be aware of that Wow, what a roller coaster. We have covered a lot of ground, to say the least, but there was so much insight and wisdom in that and nuance. Uh, it was a really fantastic and illuminating discussion. I learned a huge amount, and everyone who watches this and listens to it, I think, will learn an immense amount as well. So thank you, all of you. And just so everyone is very clear, please do buy their books, their upcoming books, The Transgender Issue, very exciting, The Right to Sex, also very exciting, and also Bad Gays. Also very exciting. Uh, and three absolutely compelling uh, writers. I can't recommend their work anymore. So please do do follow them on social media, but also buy their books. All right. Thanks, everyone. That was brilliant. I really appreciate it. And uh, stay safe, I guess. And <laughs> in the park, maybe one of you... Like Sean, you're, Sean, you're moving to London. I don't know if I should say that, but anyway, we'll just we'll go and have a nice socially distance can at some point. I'm sure. <laughs> but lots of love, and uh, I'll speak to you all soon. Thanks, Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. That was very, very good indeed. That was um, extraordinary. Uh, conversations uh, so illuminating from from all of them and I'm sorry for those who, who presumably just expected uh, an episode of filth shame on you uh, it was extremely educational and uh, a real tour de force and we're very lucky to have such incredibly high quality guests who are so informed and educated to be able to come on and, and speak to us uh, if you're listening to this on the podcast, please give us five stars. Just, I know it sounds a bit pathetic, but it just helps other people, encourages other people to listen uh, and uh, to these fantastic guests that we have on. So thank you so, so much, all of you. We will be back on Thursday at seven o'clock with another fantastic panel and another fantastic topic to be determined. Edge of the seat stuff. So I will see you Thursday, seven o'clock. Thanks for tuning in, watching or listening, and I will see you very soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.